It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Thursday, December the 2nd, 2021. It's the Guy Benson Show. Welcome in. I'm Guy Benson, your host, Fox News contributor, townhall.com political editor, And with you every day on this radio program from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time, we are so glad and honored that you're listening. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Should you miss a moment as the show airs, there's a podcast for that. It is free. It is on demand every day. GuyBensonShow.com. Programming note, in my Fox News contributor duties on the TV side, I'll be joining Shannon Bream tonight in the midnight hour for Fox News at night. Looking forward to that. Here on radio today, here's the lineup. Dr. Nicole Sapphire on Omicron, new travel restrictions, booster shots, and more. Sapphire coming up later this hour. Peter Ducey, Fox News White House correspondent, he's been asking some real doozies of questions. To the press secretary, circle back, to Fauci. He will be here to talk about some of the responses that he's gotten to his questions, uh, a number of which I would say are inadequate Just to pick one word. Also later in the program, Jason Chaffetz, former congressman, now a Fox News contributor. He will be here on a whole host of issues. Let's get started with a Fox News alert and some stats. On COVID, 48.6 million cases officially in the United States, including now two confirmed to be Omicron. Neither case appearing serious at all, which is good news. The real case count is, of course, is much higher. The death toll in the United States, people in America who have died with or of COVID during this pandemic, 782,826. The roller coaster ride on Wall Street continues. The Dow having a day up 680 points right now to 34,701. I want to begin the program today by engaging in a fact check of Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Democrat, socialist from New York. I don't spend a lot of time on this program responding to all of her various rants and pronouncements because it would take up all of our time. And she is one of these members who thrives on controversy and attention. But because what she's saying on this particular subject is being fairly widely repeated on the left, including by some in the media, at least elements of it, I think it is worth going through the facts because this is something that's going to come up, I predict, for years to come, hopefully decades to come, and you'll see why I say hopefully in a moment. Yesterday, we had Shannon Bream on this show analyzing what happened at the Supreme Court, oral arguments in the Dobbs case regarding a Mississippi abortion law that seems likely to be upheld as constitutional by the justices, maybe six of them. If you read those tea leaves correctly, what else they might do, how else they might restrict or pare back Roe versus Wade, we don't know yet. We'll find out probably in late June. 
And just as a quick aside on the Mississippi law, which would bar most abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy, that is, and it bears mentioning, a very mainstream law if you look at the world. Right? Our friends on the left often want to point to Europe as models for government and policy and other things, and they're so enlightened over there. Often I think they're wrong, but by their own standard, they should look at abortion laws throughout almost all of Europe. Our abortion laws in this country are some of the most inhumane in the world. We're up there with China and North Korea and Russia. Most countries have somewhat significant restrictions on abortion. If you look across the globe, a large majority of nations restrict abortions after the first trimester, so 12 weeks. This Mississippi law is 15 weeks. So in many ways, it is right smack in the middle of the mainstream globally, if that's the type of thing that matters to you. I know that sometimes on the left, they just totally ignore the international community when it suits them. This is one of those cases. We are a global outlier in a bad way. And yet, even reasonable restrictions on abortion later in pregnancy are consistently attacked and assailed by the hard left, the Democrats, and the media. The media is as biased on this issue as any issue out there, as being some sort of attack on women. Extreme, it's not extreme at all. Polling also shows that the overwhelming majority of Americans, the overwhelming majority of American women, support significant restrictions on abortion, particularly in the second and third trimesters, which is what this would entail in Mississippi. I just want to say that at the onset. But what AOC had to say was one of the many things that we're seeing from the left and in the media going after not the legal arguments being put forward, not citing constitutional precedent or constitutional text to justify their preferred position, which I think is telling. What we're instead seeing are a number of preemptive attacks on the very legitimacy of the Supreme Court if they render a decision that the hard left on abortion does not like. And they've made these types of threats before. So rather than arguing on substance, they're saying what they might do is illegitimate and would undermine the legitimacy of the institution. Same crowd that runs around with their hair on fire about norms and institutions under Trump, right? Sometimes justified, sometimes not, but they were guardians of our norms and institutions. But when those same norms and institutions produce outcomes that they don't like, because they've lost fair and square, they attack the institutions and try to change them. This is another consistent pattern that we've seen from many on the not even that hard left. It's sort of becoming more mainstream. One of the ways that they're doing this on the, the uh, legitimacy front is to go after Brett Kavanaugh, that justice in particular. He made – if you go back and read the transcripts of yesterday's oral arguments, I did some of it this morning – he made some extremely compelling arguments, not just logical, but constitutional arguments. Alito had some great questioning as well. But Kavanaugh was, I think, sharp and powerful. I don't know what he's going to end up voting or how far he's willing to go. We'll discover that soon enough. But the way that he was framing his questions 
seem to be setting up a pretty robust explanation for the way that he might vote. And so the attacks are coming in. AOC tweeted this earlier. Reminder that Brett Kavanaugh still remains credibly accused of sexual assault on multiple accounts with corroborated details. And this year, the FBI admitted it never fully investigated. Yet the court is letting him decide on whether to legalize forced birth in the U.S. No recusal. Let's set aside this term forced birth. Separate discussion. Most Americans support some restrictions on abortion, especially, as I mentioned, later in the pregnancy. Would that be forced birth? That's a very loaded term. I know of nobody who's remotely serious who would suggest that Brett Kavanaugh, because someone accused him of something in the past with no proof, by the way, would have to recuse himself from this or any case. But apparently AOC, well-known law professor, believes that he ought to. But let's focus on this, her so-called reminder that Justice Kavanaugh, she calls him Brett Kavanaugh, it's justice to you, madam, still remains credibly accused, she says, of sexual assault on multiple accounts with corroborated details and the FBI never fully investigated. All right, one by one, let's take those apart. He was never credibly accused by anyone. The credibility of allegations must be determined by the proof and evidence supporting those allegations. There were four allegations against Kavanaugh. Three of them are completely discredited. Right? One of them, a girl at Yale, told her classmates to this day she's not really sure it was him. She was calling around trying to crowdsource a memory decades later with the help of some left-wing lawyers. Not credible at all. According to her and her own actions, two of the other ones have been affirmatively debunked. The crazy gang rape thing with Avenatti, remember that one? And then another person who came forward on behalf of another woman, and that woman said, no, she's describing me, that never happened, this is a lie. So let's dispatch those three examples. The one accusation that got the most attention was Dr. Christine Blasey Ford. We had that whole battle, as you might recall, in 2018. Was she credible? Many people believe that she was. They watched the testimony. They watched his testimony. People had various opinions. The key is for an allegation to be credible with corroborated details, which is what AOC says, you actually have to have evidence and corroboration. There was no contemporaneous evidence whatsoever that this happened. In fact, there was no evidence that Brett Kavanaugh and Blasey Ford ever even met, let alone something like this happening, what she claimed happened, with her story being extremely inconsistent. There is zero corroboration, none. Because it was a huge firestorm, you might recall the FBI actually did revisit this case. They had done a bunch of background checks on Kavanaugh. He'd worked in the executive branch and the judicial branch. They'd done it for years. But because of the outcry, the FBI looked into it. They talked to the alleged witnesses who were supposedly at this party that she remembers. None of them backed her up. None of them. And her one star witness, her friend, Leland Kaiser, 
was actually the subject of something that the FBI found out, a new piece of information in this investigation that they did prior to the confirmation. They found out, and Leland Kaiser, the friend of Blasey Ford, key witness, according to Ford's team, she told the FBI that she had been pressured, this is witness tampering, pressured to change her story in order to hurt Kavanaugh and his chances for confirmation. That's what she said. And when it was all over, she went on the record in a book written by some New York Times reporters, Leland Kaiser, the friend and star witness for Blasey Ford, saying she does not believe her friend that this happened. Blasey Ford's own father does not believe it. The career sex crime, uh, sex crimes prosecutor that the Republicans brought in to ask questions of Blasey Ford, she laid out in detail multiple inconsistencies in the story to the point that she said she couldn't even get a warrant based on this story. It was that filled with holes. The key to me is no corroboration, no evidence. The person that was the closest to offering corroboration or evidence, this friend, ultimately said they were trying to get me to lie. They pressured me to lie. And by the way, I don't believe Christine Blasey Ford. I don't believe her story. That is what happened. Those are the facts. But here's AOC saying, oh, here's Kavanaugh, credibly accused with corroboration of all this sexual assault. And what I really want you to know about this is that this was the plan all along. Don't take my word for it. Listen to the words of Deborah Katz, who was a lawyer for Dr. Ford. After the case, she spoke at some conference and she admitted that a part of this whole plan of coming forward from Dr. Ford was for the purpose of sullying the reputation of Brett Kavanaugh in a way that could hurt him and hurt his credibility on abortion-related cases. This is part of the reason they did all of it back in 2018. They admitted it. This is Cut 22, Deborah Katz. Aftermath of these hearings, I believe that Christine's testimony brought about more good than the harm misogynist Republicans caused by allowing Kavanaugh on the court. He will always have an asterisk next to his name. When he takes a scalpel to Roe v. Wade, we will know who he is, we know his character, and we know what motivates him. And that is important. It is important that we know, and that was part of what motivated Christine. It is part of what motivated Christine, an asterisk on abortion jurisprudence. This was the game plan. Accuse him. There's no evidence. No corroboration. Accuse him of this. Make a huge deal. And if he gets on the court, there's an asterisk when it comes to abortion. And what you need is demagogic, unscrupulous people willing to ignore all the evidence and make this allegation and amplify it. And AOC stepped right up to the plate, unsurprisingly, because she fits the bill. Doesn't change the facts. That's what happened. Now, AOC made another argument, as did a reporter journalist, so-called, at the Washington Post that I will address next. Let's quickly break. We'll be right back because I want to finish this thought on The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.
From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. I'm Guy Benson, just chomping at the bit during the commercial break to continue this. My fact check and dismantling of the points, if you want to call them that, made by AOC. And it's not just her... I'm going to write a piece tomorrow for townhall.com, responding to some other people as well, including a journalist at The Washington Post, Philip Bump, who's echoing similar points. So AOC in this thread on Twitter, she added this, out of nine justices, three were appointed by a man who tried to overthrow the U.S. government and elected via minority. She also said legitimacy requires consent of the governed. They are dismantling it. Legitimacy requires consent of the governed and respecting our institutions and our system. She says that three of the justices were appointed by a man who tried to overthrow the U.S. government. If that's how you want to frame January 6th and after the election, it is still utterly irrelevant to the fact that Donald Trump was duly elected president of the United States, duly inaugurated in 2017, And under the Constitution, he had full authority to nominate these three justices, all of whom were confirmed by the United States Senate under their consent duties, advice and consent obligations. Everything about the nomination and confirmation of all three of these justices was legitimate under our system. And this ex post facto looking back like, oh, January 6th, does that invalidate Trump's election because he was undermining the next election and the next presidency. They're doing the thing that they object to. They are suggesting because they're angry about what they think the court's going to do. They are suggesting that the Trump presidency and everything that emanated from the Trump presidency was illegitimate because he did things to delegitimize the next presidency. They are engaging in the type of thing that they are supposedly objecting to. They're doing it themselves. I don't even know if they realize it. The irony is probably lost on her, if I had to guess. Here's another thing. Oh, she said he was elected via a minority. So was Bill Clinton. He was elected in 1992 with 43% of the vote. 43. Much lower vote share than Donald Trump got in 2016. Do you ever hear these people complain about the legitimacy of Bill Clinton's presidency or Ruth Bader Ginsburg and her rulings? Because she was nominated by Bill Clinton in his first term. So was Justice Breyer, still on the court. Justice Blackman, who wrote Roe versus Wade, was nominated by a president. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Roe. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. President who won 43% of the popular vote. Are those illegitimate? Those justices, their rulings, of course not, because the standard is purely based on politics, not principle. 
Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. We are back. It's Thursday on The Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcasts always free. And we are joined now by Dr. Nicole Sapphire, board-certified medical doctor, senior Fox News medical contributor, a best-selling author, including her most recent book, Panic Attack, Playing Politics with Science in the Fight Against COVID-19. Doctor, great to have you back. Thanks for having me, Guy, on this very busy week regarding COVID. Extremely busy. Also, there's a rumor that I might be seeing you in a plus one in a couple days. I'm just saying. That's right. I'll have my bells and whistles on and maybe even a Santa hat. (laughs) Awesome. We'll be talking more about the Christmas and holiday party later in the show. Doctor, I want to start with uh, the president today gave a speech talking about this plan that he's laying out to combat COVID-19 heading into the winter and the colder months. What were some of your takeaways from what he said? Well, first of all, I think it was an improvement compared to the press conference that was given by Dr. Fauci yesterday. I found that to be an incredibly disorganized, uh, kind of flustering uh, conference where he was asked certain questions and really didn't have science-backed answers for them. So I found that frustrated. I was happy to see that they are moving forward to the winter months. They've come out with their winter plan. I mean, it sounds great in theory. All of these things that he mentioned, I believe, should have probably already been instituted. For example, he's talking about making rapid testing, that rapid antigen testing, more affordable and accessible to people. Uh, yeah. We've been talking about that for months a year. Ago. Months, yeah, a year. Well, it wasn't quite out a year ago, but like months ago, I go yeah. and get a rapid test at CVS. It's about thirty, twenty to thirty dollars per test. That is not affordable for people, especially if we're wanting people to be frequently testing to try and decrease transmission. So he was saying that he's going to have insurance companies cover that. If you don't have insurance, they need to be free. But I mean, there there, there are a lot of you know intricate details there. He also mentioned expanding vaccination hours for pharmacies and other things. Well, I hate to break it to you, Joe, but uh, we have people leaving their workplaces left and right. So we have a hard enough time having pharmacy open regular hours. Now we're going to talk about expanded hours for the vaccines. I mean, yes, in theory, these are all great things. Um, but, you know, where are the real solutions on how we're actually going to get people to come and work? And what I found to be a little cheeky, which, you know, I tweeted about afterwards, I saw that you posted, was he was talking about we're going to have surge teams for rise in cases throughout the winter months, and these surge teams are going to go around and make monoclonal antibodies specifically, Uh as well as other treatments more accessible. I'm like, hey, what a great idea. Too bad Governor DeSantis did this several months ago and it was faced with criticism. Yep. When DeSantis did it in Florida, people mocked it. They said it was not going to work or pseudoscience. Then they changed their tune because it was working. And scientists said, no, actually, these are uh, effective treatments. And so they said, "Okay, well, it's corrupt. And they dreamt up this whole ridiculous conspiracy theory about Uh, financial donations, and that was debunked. It's like DeSantis does something and takes the lead on something, and it's roundly mocked or criticized by the usual suspects. And then months later, you've got the president coming out and saying, actually, this is part of our national plan now. 
Funny how that works. Uh, and it, I mean, it goes way beyond just these monoclonal antibodies, you know, the mobile teams. It goes from masking in schools and vaccine mandates. And I mean, you have to remember a year ago when everyone was just getting their first um, first shipments of the vaccines, DeSantis did things differently. And he said, we are making vaccinating the elderly a priority. We are putting the most vulnerable first. And I got to tell you, he was, was a great for that. idea. He made, he made it that vaccines were available at Publix and other places where people could easily get it. I mean, he was he has been in the forefront a lot of times. And, you know, it's unfortunate he doesn't get as much credit as he does, as he should. Dr. Sapphire, I want to ask you about Omicron. We've had a few doctors on the show over the course of the week, and I'm getting everyone's take. And my audience might be tired of me laying this out. But as soon as I heard about the new variant... And they skipped over one letter of the Greek alphabet to not offend the Chinese and she, XI. So they went to Omicron. So uh, that's super sciencey, I know. Definitely not at all uh, about politics. But my questions that instantly formulated in my head were is it more transmissible, more contagious than previous variants like Delta? Is it more virulent? Is it more severe? Is it going to be worse health wise? And do the vaccines work against it? We are still trying to answer all three of those questions based on some of the freak out that we got at the very beginning, some of the media coverage, some of the reaction from uh, various governments and political leaders. You would think that all of the answers would be negative and scary. But in fact, at least some of the answers to the crucial questions on virulence and vaccines seem at least early on to be actually rather encouraging how would you tackle that three-part assessment? Listen, first of all, it's too soon to draw any strong conclusions. Yes, the Omicron variant, they skipped over new as well, not just she, but new, because they didn't want to confuse people, because apparently NU is far too similar to N-E-W. So we skipped, they skipped two letters to get to Omicron. But so... What it does seem like is this is highly transmissible, and this is based on some sequencing data out of certain countries, the U.K., South Africa. It does seem to show a rise in cases with this particular variant, so it's likely going to be quite transmissible. I mean, Delta was extremely transmissible, so, I mean, that's not as scary being the transmissibility. I'm more interested in the virulence. Does this cause more severe illness? Does this have a higher death rate? Does this affect our children more than the preceding variants? And, you know, early reports coming out of South Africa and even the California case was that it was a mild illness. Now, there are a few caveats here. First of all, a lot of the um, outbreaks in South Africa with this variant were amongst younger people, meaning college students, which tend to have more mild disease courses anyway. So it's we need to make sure that we're separating the age-related risk factors from this. Um, the case in California was also a mild case, but also a fully vaccinated individual. And we know that they tend to have more mild symptoms following breakthrough. So we don't really know yet. But I would say that there is no there are no bells going off to to indicate that it would cause more severe illness, increased hospitalization rate or deaths, as the only thing that alerted people to the new variant was a rise in cases and not more severe illness. 
And regarding will it escape immunity, uh, who knows? It's possible. As we get farther and farther out from the original strain, yes, the immunity, either from vaccines or from prior infection, are likely to decrease slightly. We already have seen that with Delta. I mean, the vaccine, the efficacy to prevent an infection dramatically decreases after six months following the second dose, which is why boosters are being recommended. Um, we and, have, and by the way, no it's also, Go ahead. correct me if I'm wrong, it's also why they tweak the flu shot every year, right, to adapt to the latest strain, right? Absolutely. This is So what people need to start doing is changing their mindset. It, it, even if this new strain is... You know, it does escape immunity a bit more. It's the same thing that happens with influenza every year. If you go back a century ago, you had the great influenza pandemic, and it was terrible, and people died. We didn't have treatments. We didn't have vaccines. But here we are with COVID. We have vaccines. We have treatments. And just like we do with influenza, every single year there's different strains and variants, and they change the the flu shot to make sure that it targets those the best of to its ability. The same is going to happen with COVID. But here's the great thing. When it comes to the mRNA technology, it's actually much easier to update that to the circulating variants than some of the more traditional vaccines. So this is all good news. There was an exchange in the press conference yesterday that you've been critical of. You thought it was a little bit uh, unmoored, not terribly well organized. You know, Fauci was kind of running that show. There was a question and answer that I want to play for you about Omicron, and I want to get your reaction to it. Let's listen together to cut 23. This is more, this proves more transmissible, but less virulent than, than Delta. Would there be any public health benefit to furthering its, its spread by lifting travel restrictions, for example, so it can outcompete the Delta variant? You're talking about something really dangerous. You're talking about let a lot of people get infected to see if, in fact, you could protect them. That's something that I think almost all infectious disease people with any knowledge about infectious disease would not say that's a good idea. All right. So this goes back, doctor, to the idea of trying to achieve herd immunity earlier in the pandemic by a lot of people just getting it and recovering. You'd, of course, in that process, have a lot of people die. But I don't know. In this case, I don't think it's an unreasonable question, at least, because we are now in a post-vaccine era. The large majority of the American people are vaccinated. If we if and that's part of the question, if we find out that this version is significantly less virulent than Delta even, maybe you don't root for people to get infected by it, but it would seem a lot less problematic to reduce restrictions and let people go live their lives because the likelihood of them dying from it is now much lower, plus you've got treatments, plus you've got vaccines. I don't know. How do you respond to that question? What do you think of Fauci's response? Well, you know, I do. I have found Dr. Fauci's responses to be condescending in the sense that he laughs off people who are asking legitimate questions. I think that they these are legitimate questions. And and I know that he believes himself to be the person of science. But ultimately, to be able to answer these questions is what is best for the American people. And while um, you know, saying to people, just go and get natural immunity, you know, that is a, that is risky. And no public health official, at least not publicly, would ever say that. Um, but when it comes to looking at variants and moving towards the future, we have to have clear metrics. And this is something that is completely lacked throughout the entire pandemic. We need to have clear metrics at when you can roll back certain restrictions. What are they benefiting? Children wearing masks, 
when can they take them off? Can they take them off when they're vaccinated? Can they take them off when the community transmission hits a certain level? There have not been clear-cut metrics. And the same should be for the COVID restrictions. If you find a future variant to be less virulent, meaning causing less hospitalizations, less deaths, should there be a number? If we hit below X amount of hospitalizations per population, maybe it should be the magic number of whatever we've deemed acceptable for flu. If we hit a number where on average we have no more than what we expect during a flu season, then can we start taking off some of these restrictions? That's a reasonable answer. We we don't don't shut down our society. We don't shut schools. We don't force people to wear masks anywhere, airplanes or whatever. We don't have all of these restrictions for flu, even though it's going to kill thousands of people every year. And it does. If you can get to a flu type situation, then that is what an endemic virus would look like. And that would be the return to normalcy where we're not we're back to a a refrain that we frequently return to, doctor, which is an assessment of risk that is reasonable and rational based on what we've done really forever in our society. I want to ask you one other question about the Omicron variant being here in the United States, because as you pointed out, there's, I guess, two confirmed cases. One was someone in San Francisco. There's another one that has uh, been now confirmed. This patient developed mild symptoms on November 22nd, got tested November 24th, and I guess they've now confirmed that case was Omicron. That individual, a week later, no longer has any symptoms, so a full recovery. This person was vaccinated, so that, again, is a good sign, I would say, on the vaccines. But there's one other detail about this person. Apparently, it is believed that this individual likely contracted Omicron while attending a convention in New York City. I wonder if that could be a clue about how much Omicron may already be here or has been circulating globally for a while, and if it's actually been here longer, has been circulating globally for longer than we know, wouldn't that also potentially be good news on the virulence and vaccine and uh, those fronts, right? Those fronts at least, because there hasn't been some sort of very obvious, deeply concerning widespread phenomenon of of severe illness and hospitalization uh, and death, the longer this thing's potentially been out there, couldn't that possibly be good news? No, undoubtedly, it could be. And one of the ways that they're surveilling to see what the effect of this variant is, it's something called S-gene dropout. So you have three major um, points in the genetic sequencing of the virus that um, are flagged when you do a PCR test. And so, yes, when you get your results, it's just yes or no, you have SARS-CoV-2. But then in about about 2% of those positive cases, they're being sequenced to see if anything is standing out in the in the viruses. And what we saw with earlier variants was there was what we called an S dropout, meaning there was a mutation in this one area. That was with alpha. Now, with Delta, it wasn't there anymore. And as we know, Delta completely took over. And so that continues to have been the dominant variant. And with the Omicron, it now has the dropout again, similar to the Alpha. So it's very easy to tell the difference between Delta and Omicron. And the good news is when you're looking at the majority of the world and even the United States, Delta has is 
still by far the majority. So it would be great to, if we found more Omicron cases, it would show that Omicron it maybe is not as transmissible as Delta and will maybe not be nearly as big of an issue as people are making it seem. Now, yeah. But we have to closely watch to see if that Omicron starts having a higher percentage. Um, the, of course, the hope is that it doesn't um, supersede that of Delta because of the possibility that it will have a dampened effect on vaccines and treatments. Yep. And you're looking and monitoring all this stuff on hospitalization rates as well. Is it more severe? Uh, Are we seeing it more severe cases in in vaccinated people? Those are questions that people are going to be watching extremely closely in the public health community. But so far, knock on wood, those outcomes initially are looking more encouraging than discouraging. We hope that continues to be the case. Dr. Nicole Sapphire, always appreciate your time and can't wait to see you this weekend. As always, thanks for having me on, and I'll see you this weekend. Sounds good. It's The Guy Benson Show, and we will be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy, and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. As we're back on the Guy Benson Show, this is kind of an interesting little flurry of stories that have emerged in just the last 24 hours. It seems that there's a whole bevy of staffers getting ready to leave Vice President Kamala Harris. Isn't this interesting? So it's four of them. I think if we're keeping track at home, there's four of them planning to depart the office of the vice president. So we can say farewell to Peter Velez, (laughs) the director of press operations. Also, Vince Evans. (laughs) Deputy Director of Public Engagement and Intergovernmental Affairs. Then, according to Politico, Ashley Etienne is out. (laughs) She's the communications director, at least on her way out. And then a name that you might recognize, Simone Sanders. (laughs) (laughs) She's on her way out the door at the end of the year. She's a senior advisor resigning amid signs of disarray, according to FoxNews.com. So that's four of them. That's a bit of an exodus. Remember, staff issues have plagued Kamala Harris for her entire career at every level of government, per various reports. It's almost as if there's a common denominator, and it's not the staffers. Final hour, or middle hour, I should say, the Guy Benson Show upcoming. Fox Nation presents podcasts, women of the Bible speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Kai Benson Show. It's a brand new hour here on The Guy Benson Show. Thank you for tuning in. Always glad to have you here. GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website. GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is free every day. 
Fox News alert as we begin the middle hour. Let's check in on the Dow. Big day on Wall Street, as I mentioned at the top of the last hour. The session closed off of session highs, but still very much in the green. The Dow up 617 points today, ending at 34,639. We are joined now by Peter Ducey, Fox News Channel's White House correspondent. And Peter, it's great to have you back here, sir. Thanks for having me back, Guy. Delighted to have you. So you've been very busy this week asking some questions that have gotten a fair amount of attention. I want to walk through a few of the sound bites and just get your reaction, A, on sort of how you formulated the question and then what you thought of the response that you got. Starting with cut six, this was yesterday with Dr. Fauci. Dr. Fauci, as you advised the president about the possibility of new testing requirements for people coming into this country, does that include everybody? The answer is yes, because you know that the new, uh, uh, the new uh, uh, regulation, if you want to call it that, is that anybody and everybody who's coming into the country needs to get a test within 24 hours of getting on the plane to come here. But well, what about people who don't take a plane and just these border crossers coming in in huge numbers? You know, but that's a different issue. For example, when you talk, we still have Title 42 with regard to protection at the border. So there are protections at the border that you don't have the capability, as you know, of somebody getting on a plane, getting checked, looking at a passport. We don't have that there. But we can get some degree of mitigation. Is there something to do to test these people somewhere else? There, no, there, there is there is testing at the border under certain circumstances. Under certain circumstances. So it's a different issue, he says, except to me, and I'm not an expert like he reminds us so often that he is. But from an epidemiology perspective, I don't understand why people entering the country, no matter how they're doing it, when it comes to the virus and the mitigation and the testing, I don't see why that's different. Politically, it's, it's different. The The logistics are different. But scientifically, I don't know why it's different. So two things about that. Number one, you're right. COVID is COVID, whether you are walking or flying, whether you are doing something legally or illegally. The variant does not seem to discriminate. The second thing, though, about what Dr. Fauci told me, he said there, uh, yeah, there's testing that happens at the border under circumstances certain circumstances. During that briefing, our uh, Fox correspondent, Bill Malusian, who is at the border all the time, texted me and he said that is not really even close to accurate. The only testing that is done, uh, CBP does not test people that they catch. Uh, You got to take the sick people to a non-governmental organization. Some of them then get tested. Some of them get stuck in a hotel. And as we saw this summer, they don't even tell the people at the hotel or the people in town, the local cops, that they got a bunch of COVID-positive border crossers uh, right under their noses. And so it's a big, big loophole in this big new policy that is so strict for everybody else. I mean, there's no question about that. And I think that disconnect is a tough political question. He says he's all about the science and not about the politics, but that seemed like a political answer to me. By the way, I have on our screen in the studio, I have all the networks on and including our competition. And I see on MSNBC, they've got a little box where they're promoting interviews later in the day. And just in case any of you are interested, Dr. Fauci will be doing an interview on MSNBC this evening, and I'm just relieved that he's finally going to do a television interview somewhere because uh, he's often in hiding. You never see him. He doesn't talk to anyone, uh, and and he'll really speak to a bunch of people who uh, will probably 
be predisposed to be skeptical, right? That's definitely the MSNBC audience. So that'll do uh, a lot of good, I'm sure. Groundbreaking stuff tonight on MSNBC. Meanwhile, Peter Ducey, let's go to your next question. And a few of these questions that you had ready for Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary, you came loaded for bear with previous quotes and comments from President Biden himself, including when he was a candidate. So in cut eight, you used the Biden standard on covid deaths and asked a tough but I think legitimate question. Let's listen to that exchange. In 2020, when roughly 220,000 Americans had already died of COVID, Joe Biden said about Trump, anyone who is responsible for that many deaths should not remain as president of the United States of America. Is that still the standard now that more Americans have died under President Biden than President Trump? Well, I think the fundamental question here is what are you doing to save lives and protect people? And the former president was suggesting people inject bleach. He apparently reportedly didn't even share with people he was going to interact with that he had tested positive for COVID himself. He continued to provide a forum for misinformation, which probably led to people not getting, uh, not taking steps forward to get to protect themselves, to wear masks, to eventually get vaccinated. This president has made the vaccine widely available. He's relied on the health, uh, the advice of his health and medical experts, and he is trying to be a part of solving this crisis, getting the pandemic under control. And I think there's a pretty stark difference between their approaches. All right, Peter. So, look, uh, to me, there are differences in the approaches. I think some of the way that Trump talked about and approached COVID probably was a significant factor in costing him the election with a lot of people who weren't happy with the way He talked about it in the way that he approached it. However, he did launch Operation Warp Speed, which brought us these vaccines, probably the most important decision he could have made. He got that one right. And the argument from Biden wasn't rhetoric at the time. It wasn't approach. It was death count. Right. It was it was the the body count in America. And as you point out, his standard as a candidate was if this many people have died on your watch, You shouldn't be president anymore. And now more people have died on this president's watch. I just don't know how deflecting to the way the men talk about the issue really addresses the the core of your question. Do we lose Peter? We lost him briefly. We'll get Peter back. And I also don't want to necessarily put Peter on the spot. Because I'm sure there are many journalists who often feel that spokespeople don't fully answer their questions entirely to their satisfaction. But, Peter, I was just asking you, in terms of the way that she pivoted from the Biden standard, the way he laid it out, to a new standard of you know, approaches and rhetoric and that sort of thing, that's not necessarily responsive to your point, which was based on Biden's previous point. Yes, and he was very declarative. And it goes back to the whole thing. Yeah, the election number one policy wound up being COVID. But from day one, Biden's entire campaign was just about Trump. Now, it's not about Trump. They've got an extra year's worth of knowledge about the disease, about the vaccines, about treatments. And so it is a fair question. You know, you say that if this many people die on your watch, then it's somebody else's turn. Uh, But apparently they don't think that anymore now that they Uh, are in charge. Yeah. And I know Saki was asked, you know, how's it going? He campaigned, Biden did, on crushing the virus and ending the pandemic in America and getting back to normal. And she was challenged on that. She said, well, we're working on it. 
Like, okay, I mean, that's a fair enough answer if the promises weren't so big and the declarations, as you say, weren't so stark and sort of simplistic as they were on the campaign trail. And it is worth pointing out, even as I am sometimes critical, and I was at the time of the way the previous president dealt with this issue, he and his administration handed off to Joe Biden three successful vaccines and a bunch of other treatments that were either being deployed already or were in progress and under development. And yes, there was a new wave. There have been other issues as well, but the virus clearly has not been crushed, has not been stopped. We're working on it and we're talking about it more responsibly. Uh, That is perhaps one way to answer the question. It does not address, as you say, Peter, the just very clear, stark way that candidate Biden tried to lay it out. Okay, up next, we had the remain in Mexico policy question because the Biden administration got rid of that policy and a few other successful Trump era border policies. Now we see the border crisis. It is as bad as as, uh, it has ever been. And the court has ordered, the Supreme Court has ruled that the way that the Biden administration jettisoned the remain in Mexico policy was not legal. So they're bringing it back. They've struck a deal with the Mexican government to bring it back. I think that will actually help stem the tide of the border crisis. It won't totally fix it and reverse it, but it will help somewhat. And it's this strange sort of dance that they have to do, Peter, where I think secretly they're probably not too unhappy to have their hands tied and be forced to readopt a successful policy because they're getting hammered at the border because they've been you know, failing so badly down there. But they have to also signal that they don't like it and they're fighting to get rid of it, but they're also re-implementing it at the same time. You again quoted Joe Biden about this, and here was that exchange in Cut 32. Joe Biden once described the remain in Mexico policy as dangerous, inhumane, and goes against everything we stand for as a nation of immigrants. So why is he keeping it? He continues to stand by exactly those comments and statements. And uh, the Secretary of Homeland Security put out a memorandum conveying we want to end this program. Uh, But we also believe in following the law, and that's exactly what we're doing, as there was a a ruling uh, that required us moving forward with implementation. Okay, so the claim is we still believe that it's dangerous and inhumane, but we're doing it anyway because we're, we're being forced to do it. Except, Peter, I know that there was another instance involving COVID restrictions, and I believe in this case it was you know, a rent rental policy for, for landlords and renters where the Supreme Court ruled something and the Biden team just said, we're, we're going to just ignore that. We're going to move forward anyway, and uh, we'll just let the lawsuits uh, – drag on and on. And and for now, though, we're keeping it in place. I'm just not quite sure where their commitment to obeying court rulings, uh, where that commitment ends and where it doesn't end. And that's a really important point, because this is a president who, again, you know, you talk about the governing, which he's doing now versus the campaigning. Uh, at the end of the campaign, right around the time that he was sworn in, he was talking about how one of America's most cherished values is respect for the rule of law. They have courts, (laughs) the the ultimate authority, telling them, uh, these things that you're trying to do, not consistent with the law. Don't do it. And the White House says, eh, do it anyway. So (laughs) with that eviction moratorium, you just mentioned it, 
And now with uh, this remain in Mexico, then you've also got with the vaccine mandates for employers, it, it keeps happening. And, you know, they, they talk about restoring norms. Well, the ultimate norm in this country is the separation of powers. And also, if a judge tells you something, you kind of have to do it. It's like right. uh, if a judge tells somebody that they have to go to jail and they say, I, you know what? No, I'm just going to keep on uh, living my life, doing what I'm doing, what I'm doing. And I'm, I'm yeah, not going to Court orders, especially when it gets up to the Supreme Court, it's not really a buffet where you're like, yeah, I'll take that one. I won't take that one. We're going to ignore you on the eviction moratorium, but we must do it on Remain in Mexico. It, it, it feels political, as does so many things these days. Peter, last one that I want to play, because we actually mentioned this story in the last hour. I think it's up to four now staffers for Vice President Kamala Harris announcing that they are going to be leaving in the coming days and weeks a few lower level people, but all the way up to Simone Sanders as well. That's a pretty significant departure rate of four people kind of all dropping like flies in the span of just a couple of days. So you decided in your own uh, blunt sort of way, asked a question of Jen Psaki on this front. Cut 31. A handful of key aides have announced either that they are leaving the vice president's office or are reportedly going to be leaving the vice president's office soon. Is the vice president not satisfied with the staffing that she has had so far, or do people just not want to work for her anymore? Well, Peter, I would say that working on a presidential campaign, I maybe covering one too, I would say, to be fair, and uh, working in the first year of a White House is exciting and rewarding, but it's also grueling and exhausting. It's all of those things at once, uh, and many of the team members you're referencing, and I would just note uh, there has been one an announcement about Simone Sanders departing, but there hasn't been official announcements about others. So I would leave it to them and the vice president's team to make any additional announcements. But in my experience, and if you look at past precedent, uh, it's natural for staffers who've thrown their heart and soul into a job to uh, be ready to move on to a new challenge after a few years. And that is applicable to uh, many of these individuals. Well, it's uh, not a few years. It's less than one year in this case. And yes, working on a campaign than entering an administration can be exhausting. She said so can covering a campaign or an administration. You have that job, Peter. Are you exhausted? Are you going to be leaving? You know, I tell you what, uh, I love working at the White House because I get to sleep in my own bed. I did the campaign for two years before this. It is a grueling grind. But once you get here to the White House, uh, it's it's stressful and it's draining in different ways. But to your point, you know, these things, four people don't just leave the job that they've been working for, working towards for years or decades in some cases, uh, all at once for no reason, just because yeah, after tired. 10 or 11 months. Right. And, and four of them, she said, well, only one is officially announced. So the others are reported. And the vice president's staff is also smaller, of course, than the president's staff. So the numbers are sort of magnified for that reason as well. Uh, not bad spin from circle back on that one. I'll give her credit, but still uh, I'll give it like uh, six out of 10, a six out of 10 answer on that one. Uh, according to Judge Benson, we've got to leave it there for now. Peter Ducey, Fox News White House correspondent. Always appreciate it, Peter. Talk soon. I will see you soon, Guy. Thanks. Yes, sir. We'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. With Fox News Podcasts Plus, you can enjoy all your favorite Fox News podcasts without commercials. Subscribe now at foxnewspodcasts.com. Back here on The Guy Benson Show. 
We mentioned yesterday, Stacey Abrams has announced that she's going to run for governor in Georgia, or as she would call it, for re-election. Because she uh, never really admitted that she lost last time. She can try again. Very liberal Democrat. Uh, and she's just a heroine on the left. They're going to give her so much money. And they've all fed her lie about her election. Right? They're horrified by Trump's lies about his election, but they love her lies about her election. In any case, Trump put out a statement yesterday when she got into the race, and unfortunately, he spent much of his statement trashing the Republican governor in Georgia, Brian Kemp. And I understand that there might be some primary challenges to Kemp. We don't know who's going to be the nominee. I'd say the incumbent is probably favored. Brian Kemp is infinitely, infinitely better as governor of Georgia than Stacey Abrams would ever be. He beat her once. He can beat her again, especially in a Republican-leaning year. 2018 was not. 2022 probably will be. But not if he's the nominee and you've got the former Republican president attacking him relentlessly, as he has. And the sin, of course, of Governor Kemp is that he wouldn't play into the falsehood that Trump secretly won Georgia, that Georgia was robbed from him. Trump lost Georgia. That's what happened. And he wants to blame people for it, and he's mad that Kemp wouldn't, what, help him steal it or lie about it at least. I think that that is actually something to commend Governor Kemp. And Trump was talking about how the whole thing was rigged. That convinced enough Republican voters to sit home in January for the runoff elections. And guess what we have now? Two Democrat senators from Georgia. And if we're not careful, we could get a Democrat governor from Georgia if the Republicans keep attacking each other. That's my two cents on that. Stacey Abrams must be defeated. It's The Guy Benson Show. It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Back here on the Guy Benson Show, I want to share with you some news that the Wall Street Journal and the BBC have been reporting on. It is new internal documents revealing the extent to which Chinese Communist Party officials at the very highest level have been personally, intimately involved in the crackdown against Uyghurs in Xinjiang province. Now, crackdown is in some ways a euphemism because the U.S. State Department is calling what is happening to the Uyghurs in that region of China A genocide. That is the position of the U.S. government. Genocide. It's cultural genocide. In some cases, it's literal torture and killing. Mass sterilization. Forcible. Forcible abortion. Slave labor. Right? Forced labor camps. Re-education camps. Barring people from practicing their religion. This is targeting ethnic and religious minorities, overwhelmingly Muslims. The Chinese government has also cracked down on Christians, persecuted Christians elsewhere in the country. But this genocide is against Muslims. It's religious. It's also ethnic. And the Wall Street Journal headline is leaked documents detail Xi Jinping's extensive role in Xinjiang crackdown. 
Records of internal speeches released by a U.K.-based panel show how China's leader set the blueprint for a vast campaign of forcible assimilation against Uyghurs and other groups. And these documents, some of which are marked top secret, describe internal speeches delivered by Mr. Xi, so that's the Chinese dictator, and other senior party leaders regarding circumstances in Xinjiang. It was back between 2014 and 2017, the period in which this assimilation campaign, and again, I think that's putting it very mildly, was conceived and launched. And that's why you now have re-education camps, concentration camps, people being marched onto trains. We've seen that video. It's appalling. And the estimates are between one and two million people are in these concentration, re-education, and forced labor camps. One to two million Uyghurs in China. And I don't think it would ever have been really credible or plausible to say, well, maybe this is just a local CCP activity. Maybe the leaders in that area of the country took it upon themselves to do all this. No. This was always going to come top down. This is why totalitarian communists operate the way they do. It is not a bottom up. It is not a federalist system. It is top down. It's how their system works. And indeed, we now know, based on these documents, it comes from the very top. And I know there's a lot of people who want to look the other way. There's a lot of money to be made by looking the other way. What China's done, and it's so brazen, the Chinese government, it's not just asking Westerners to sweep it under the rug or ignore it or just sort of avert their eyes. They are actually requiring people to be complicit. It's sort of this big campaign of blackmail to some extent. It's definitely coercive. If you want this money and this access to our market and more than a billion people and to be in good standing with us to make your money, you need to not just look over here as opposed to over there. You also need to make sure that our standards, our values are reflected in what you do and what you say or else. And there are a lot of people in the West apparently willing to do exactly that for money. That's the way China is using their influence. And unfortunately, it is newsworthy when people or entities actually stand up to this. It is less newsworthy, perversely, when companies or organizations capitulate. That is becoming the norm. It's still noteworthy. It's still outrageous. But it's the norm. It's why when Enos Cantor, now Enos Cantor Freedom, says what he says, as aggressively as he does, he gets a lot of attention because eyebrows go up. Wow, he's actually doing it. He's putting it on the line a little bit here. He's calling out some of his fellow superstar celebrities in the NBA. And I had a similar reaction, positive reaction, to this news yesterday from the Women's Tennis Association. Right? They have done, they have shown leadership in a way that many other American companies and organizations and individuals have been unable or unwilling to do, including the NBA. I think a lot of people could take some notes 
over at Nike headquarters or Disney headquarters, Apple. Here's another story on this front. It's from the Wall Street Journal. The Women's Tennis Association said Wednesday it will halt all of its tournaments in China because it is not satisfied that Chinese tennis player Peng Shui is safe following an allegation of sexual assault against a retired senior government official made last month on her verified social media account. Though the decision could cost women's tennis hundreds of millions of dollars in future revenue, WTA chief executive Steve Simon said he would willingly cut off one of the sport's largest business partners until Ms. Peng's status was clarified. Other sports organizations, such as the National Basketball Association and Soccer's English Premier League, have previously found themselves in conflict with China over various matters. But the WTA's move to suspend the nine tournaments that it has scheduled for next year appears to be unprecedented in global sports. The break comes three months before the sports world's attention turns to Beijing for a Winter Olympics in February, an event for which the White House has considered a diplomatic boycott in recent weeks. So look, women's tennis in this case, they're not saying it's the genocide or the slave labor or the crackdown and stamping out of Hong Kong's democracy or the aggression against India, the abuses in Tibet, the lies about COVID. Must I go on? Apparently I must. It's not that in this case, it is one of their members, a superstar tennis player in China, said she was sexually assaulted by a senior CCP official. Then she vanished for a while. And they've had her come out for a few photos or videos where they say, look, she's fine. They're not buying it at the Women's Tennis Association. The Olympics, by the way, they're fine with it. You've got quotes from IOC people saying, oh, I, you know, we, we trust them. We think it's fine now. Nothing to see here. Let's all move on. That's exactly what they feel like they have to say. I guess, to sleep at night, but the Women's Tennis Association is actually taking a stand. And I'm not necessarily blaming them for not linking it to any of the other atrocities or crimes or scandals that I just listed. This is something that is directly in their court, so to speak. It ties specifically, explicitly to what they do as an organization. And the malign impact and the terrible behavior of the Chinese Communist Party has evidently put someone that they care about in their world in danger because she spoke out, having allegedly been assaulted. And that was a red line for them within their sport because they say, oh, sports, it's, you know, it's international diplomacy. We put things aside for competition. They're not going to sweep this aside. Good for them. This is actual leadership. And speaking of leadership, I also want to play for you a few sound bites. We have mentioned this before on the air. I want to bring you an update. Senator Marco Rubio is leading a crusade right now in the Senate. He's objecting to the defense bill. I'm sure he supports, he's a hawk. He supports the defense bill, but he wants to use this moment to insert into the defense bill a provision that has already unanimously passed the Senate which effectively sanctions companies, good services coming out of Xinjiang province from their factories, making the assumption correctly that it is tainted by slave labor in an area where genocide is being carried out. It passed unanimously in the Senate. It has stuck in the House. You've got powerful people that are lobbying against it, including reportedly John Kerry, the climate czar, 
from this administration, including, based on reports, at least in the recent past, companies like Apple and Nike. They don't want their bottom line affected by this. They think it's too much. You don't want to rattle the cage too much of the Chinese. And if that means going a little soft on genocide and slavery, well, so be it. I think Coca-Cola was also involved in that. Some of them have backed away or issued denials. But this provision in the Senate, again, unanimous, has not become law. So Rubio is saying, let's put it in the defense bill. In a must-pass piece of legislation, this is our moral obligation to do this, to stand up to China in a way that isn't just a speech on the Senate floor somewhere, but actually has force of law and some economic teeth for China to perhaps actually understand. And because Rubio is taking this stand, he's actually being attacked by the Democratic leadership for being an obstructionist. Chuck Schumer came out and attacked him for obstructing the process. Saying like, oh, look, we already passed it here. It's stuck in the House. That's their problem. Don't do this to the defense bill. Look, I can understand some of the arguments here on both sides. But if you're ever going to obstruct, if you're ever going to use your power and influence as a single senator under their system in the U.S. Senate, is there a cause that you can think of that is more righteous than standing up against communist China's slavery and genocide? Does that cause exist? And what does that say about the choice of Schumer to come out and not say we stand fully in solidarity with you? The House must act on this. We don't know if this is the right way to do it. But instead to say, you know, this is all on you, the shoulders of one man, Marco Rubio, partisan, obstructionist, that does not seem like the correct tone At the very least, because the guy that you're trying to paint as the bad guy here, Rubio, is the one fighting tooth and nail against slavery and genocide. Here is Rubio on the floor of the Senate yesterday explaining what he's up to in Cut 17. We've all heard the stories, right? In China and the Xinjiang province, Uyghur Muslims are taken from their homes and their families. They're forced to work in these factories as slaves. They're forced to renounce their religion, change their name, forced sterilization, forced abortions. It's been characterized, rightfully so, as as genocide. So I filed a bill, bipartisan support, and this bill um, says that any product that's made in a factory in that part of China has a presumption that it's made by slaves. And it passed the Senate unanimously. It's sitting over in the House. So I'm trying to get it here as an amendment on this bill. And here's what happens. The House... They have this thing where they come forward and say, under the Constitution, if it generates any revenue, it has to start in the House. The problem I have with that is that they interpret it very differently than how the Supreme Court has interpreted that clause in the Constitution. Very broadly. In fact, so broadly that they can basically use it on virtually anything. They can just apply it to anything they don't like. He goes on. Some of this is kind of in the weeds, parliamentary stuff. The objections that are being raised, but the fundamental issue here is China's conduct and what stand we're willing to take as a country. Cut 18, Rubio went on. And so this is really not about general revenue generating. The CBO said it's insignificant, really. This is about the fact that they don't want this bill to pass over in the House. And I understand why. Listen, there's some big companies out there, some very big companies. We know that for a time, Apple and Nike, a lot of big companies are pushing against it. They're not going to admit it. 
Who's going to go out lobbying in favor of slave labor? But this is their bottom line. They make a lot of money by making stuff by people that aren't paid to make it. And they're lobbying against this thing. And I'm sure they've got rationale for it that they've given people. The bottom line is the House doesn't want to pass this, or at least some people over there don't. And the reason why I know that is because we passed it here unanimously. We sent it over there. And if this was, let me tell you what, if this was a revenue issue, if this, if this was the issue. The issue was we're in favor of the policy. You're right. There shouldn't be slave labor and we shouldn't be participating in it. But, but we can't do it in this bill because it impedes on our prerogative as the House. If that was really their position, it would be very simple. You, you pass our version, take the House version, pass a House version of our bill and send it over here and it becomes the law. Why haven't they done that? Let it originate over there and send it here. They haven't offered to do that. They haven't offered to do that because there are other considerations at stake. The considerations that lead so many people to put blinders on when it comes to China or to base themselves even further than that. Schumer came out and called what Rubio is doing an absurdity and sad. He said if we put this into this bill, this anti-slavery provision into this bill, it would kill the bill. Well, whose fault is that? It wouldn't just die out of nowhere. It would die because people were making a choice to kill the bill over this provision. Who are those people and why? It's like they want to hide behind this blizzard of minutia and eyes glazing over parliamentary stuff to dispatch something and make sure it doesn't become law because they don't want to have to face the actual accountability of standing up and raising their hand and saying, we are not willing to make this thing law. We are not willing to allow this to pass. If that's your position, if you're a big corporation or you're a member of Congress or you are a member of the Biden administration trying to work with China on climate change, for example, if you've got some reasons why you don't want to rankle Beijing and you don't want to sanction slave labor from a region where genocide is taking place, according to our own government, then you should at least come out and make that argument openly. And if you're too embarrassed to do it, if you realize that it looks too awful to actually say so in the open, then maybe the problem isn't Marco Rubio. Maybe the problem is the people who want Rubio to fail but don't want to explain why. We've got to step aside. It's a battle that we will continue to watch. It's The Guy Benson Show. Stay tuned. The Guy Benson Show. More next. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Welcome back to The Guy Benson Show. New Gallup poll about inflation. The current inflation environment has caused hardship for 45%, nearly half, of U.S. households. Unsurprisingly, 71% of Americans living in households making less than 40 grand a year say that the recent price increases have caused their family financial hardship. So the overwhelming majority of lower income households are feeling the bite and the pain of inflation. The richer you are, the more you're able to absorb inflation and the higher costs because you're rich. Inflation is a tax on everyone, but it's especially regressive. It is a disproportionate tax the farther down the income scale you get. And what is Democrats' big solution to this? It's to pass trillions of dollars in new spending, a lot of which is not honestly paid for at all, 
even by the rigged scores, they're short by hundreds of billions of dollars. The real number is trillions. And in that bill, they want to cut taxes and give huge tax breaks to millionaires in blue states while raising taxes on up to 30% of the middle class. People already hurting disproportionately from inflation. More spending, more tax breaks for the rich, and higher taxes for many millions in the middle class. That is literally what the Democrats have voted for in the face of this inflation. It is absolutely crazy town. And the pain is very much real. And it is hitting most the people that Democrats claim to represent and care about, the little guy. When in fact, they are becoming the elitist party of the rich increasingly by the day. Look at their actions, not their words. Final hour of The Guy Benson Show. Jason Chaffetz coming up. Stay with us. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him, you love him, you want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's the Thursday happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. Welcome in. I'm Guy Benson. Our website, GuyBensonShow.com. You can get all sorts of resources about the program there, including our free podcast, No Charge, On Demand, every day when the show is over. The show, of course, airs 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time, GuyBensonShow.com. Programming note, I'll be joining Shannon Bream, Fox News at night, tonight in the midnight hour. So burning that oil late Looking forward to it with Shannon. And the happy hour, sponsored as always by the Finnish Long Drink, which will be featured at the Christmas party coming up this weekend. And we will start to answer some of producer Christine's questions about this party later this hour during the home stretch. But Long Drink is like a quasi sponsor of the party. It is a full blown sponsor of the happy hour. It is really delicious. We recommend it. I'm a fan. TheLongDrink.com is their website. You can find out where it's sold near you. They're expanding. They have variety packs in some states now, which are fantastic. You get to try all of the offerings just in one pack. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly, 21 plus only. Thank you. With us now is Jason Chaffetz, Fox News contributor, former chairman of the House Oversight Committee and author of They Never Let a Crisis Go to Waste, the truth about disaster liberalism. He also hosts the Jason in the House podcast on Fox News Radio. You can go to foxnewspodcasts.com. Jason, great to have you back. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I want to walk through a couple different things with you, starting with a soundbite that aired this morning. This was John Heilman, one of these uh, journalists who he's got various projects. He's an MSNBC contributor, I believe. And he was on Morning Joe, and he was talking about Republicans and COVID, and I feel like he kind of gets a lot of this backwards. I'll play cut 16, then we can talk about it. 
Let's listen to John Heilman. And it becomes gospel that he's a villain and that somehow, somehow he's asserting his power by trying to get people vaccinated and protect the American public from this disease that's killed 700,000 people. And it's because if people follow Fauci, there's likelier a chance that COVID will go away. And if COVID goes away, it's bad right now for Republicans. It's just the math on this, the political math on this is not hard to figure out. All right, Jason. So, look, I think some of the demonization of Fauci goes overboard, even though I've been a real critic of him increasingly, because I think he flip flops and is very arrogant and is inconsistent and doesn't just follow the science. But what Heilman claims there is that if everyone just listened to Fauci, then covid would go away and that would be bad for the Republican Party. And I wonder what your thoughts are about that, because I feel like he gets a few different things wrong in that piece of analysis. Yeah, I, I think that that is totally wrong. It was first of all, it was Donald Trump that was out there and Fauci was out helping uh, lead the the effort there. I, I think it's time for a change with with Dr. Fauci. I think America needs a second opinion. I see somebody who has. I I see this Biden Harris White House as, as an organization that has put out policy and then tried to find the science to back it up. Uh, I find the hypocrisy in some of the things Dr. Fauci has done. And it bothers me that he has time to go do cover shoots for InStyle magazine, but doesn't necessarily have the time to investigate the origins of the COVID uh, where it started. I think Rand Paul really made a, a case that, you know, uh, this whole wet market theory I did, he wasn't buying it. He was. He wanted to know if if they had, uh, you know, if our own government, our own organization that was run by Fauci had actually funded some of this. And I, I, there's just too many questions at this point. There are so many good qualified doctors, medical experts, healthcare experts. I don't understand why we continue on with Dr. Fauci. Some of the demonization, some of the characterizations are probably. I'm with you on that guy. They're they're way over the top. They're not productive. But yeah, but you can you can absolutely criticize him on the substance, which we do. And when that happens, he says, well, you're really just attacking science because I am the science. Right. That's his response, which I think is not only untrue. I think it's deeply unhelpful. And it goes to, as I said before, a self-regard that is so prodigious that I think a lot of people are totally turned off by it, myself included. I I agree. He does not personify science. And um, what I want to see is the science and data come out, allow the scientific community to rally behind that, and then collectively say, yeah, this is the right course of action. But that that's not what I see. And it, it, he's had his time. Um, let's get somebody else in there. Get a second opinion, a fresh voice that people can believe in, and somebody new to look at the data. Because quite frankly, the situation has gotten worse. We have more deaths this year than last year. So, Well, I think that's that's part of the issue here for a lot of folks. And when John Heilman goes on MSNBC and says that if we just follow all of Fauci's pronouncements, then it's likelier for COVID to go away, I don't think that's actually true. What is the evidence behind that? If anything, it's the left – the Democratic Party, some of the sort of public health establishment, they're the ones who seem to be most invested in keeping COVID front and center. COVID is sort of over as a public policy proposition in a lot of 
red-leaning states, right? It's not completely over. Of course, they're still treating people and encouraging vaccines and getting people vaccinated and giving various, you know, antibody treatments. The pill is just about to be uh, approved by the FDA, it looks like. COVID isn't over, but treating it like a life-altering pandemic is close to over. Treating it as an endemic virus is close to reality in some of these red states. That's the opposite of what Heilman says. Well, two things that uh, obviously not addressed in those comments. One is, how do they account for Florida and Ron DeSantis's approach to this? And they have the lowest lowest per capita rates in the country. So, you know, you better need to explain that. And the second thing is... And by the way, the, and just, just to intervene on that for a second, they're at the lowest levels in the country now because they had their terrible Delta wave over the summer and a lot of this is seasonal, and you're seeing other places now getting hit hard, whereas Florida has moved past their their seasonal spike. They also have a, a lot of people vaccinated. They have good vaccine rates. They've got good treatments available. So I made this point, Jason, the other day on the show. If you were blaming Ron DeSantis personally for what was happening over the summer and ignoring all the positive stuff like keeping schools open and keeping businesses afloat and bringing jobs into the state and growing that economy. If you want to say that was all meaningless and DeSantis was bad because of these outcomes in the surge, when the surge is in Michigan, is that Gretchen Whitmer's fault? And is the new low in Florida on case rates and hospitalizations, is that a feather in the cap of Ron DeSantis or does it only work as an attack on Republicans, and then just everyone clams up and says nothing about Democrats. That's how it feels. Politics, not science, again. Yeah, it does. And we do make a mistake. I think some people make a mistake when they try to, to you know, come up with a cute quip about how what they would call Dr. Fauci, that he's like this guy or something. Stick to the facts, and I think you help win the argument. The thing I wrote about for foxnews.com that really gets under my skin, though, that I haven't heard Dr. Fauci or this administration address is the open border on on the southern border. You can't tell me that you're worried about the 12 people that are going to come in from Botswana with this new Omicron uh, 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 variant. variant, and then you have the southern border with literally hundreds of thousands of people that are flowing north without the testing, without the masks, and without the vaccine. That, that's If you don't address that, and, and Dr. Fauci was evidently asked at, at it, the White House podium yesterday, he didn't answer. Oh, that's a separate No, he said issue. that's different. Yeah, he said yeah, it's why, different, why, but it's, it's not Why is all. it different? Why is it different? The, the right. administration is literally taking these people and then dispersing them out to these states. They're not even telling the states where they're going. They're showing up in the dead of night. I, you can't be serious about solving this problem if you're also simultaneously not serious about locking down the southern border. Well, and if you're just applying two completely different standards, right? If they're about to implement, and I guess they are implementing some new plans on travel restrictions and that sort of thing about what American citizens even will have to do to come back into the United States heading into the colder months in the winter, we can debate those on the merits. But if you're not applying all of those standards, if not more strenuous standards to illegal immigrants at the border, right, who aren't vaccinated in most cases, aren't tested in many, many cases, that doesn't make any sense. And for Fauci to wave off that question from Peter Ducey like he did yesterday and say, well, that's different, it might be different politically. But from an epidemiology standpoint, it's not different at all. It's people coming into a place, a new population entering a country 
with a potential to spread the virus. I don't see how it's different at all from a scientific perspective. Fauci didn't want to answer the question for political reasons. And that goes yet again to what we've been talking about, Jason, the politicizing of Dr. Fauci, how he doesn't seem to be someone like he claims who just follows the science, because if he did, he wouldn't be spinning the way that he did on this question. Exactly. That's I can't, I can't say it any better than you just did. That's exactly right. One more point on this general topic. There was a tweet from Ron Klain, who's the White House chief of staff under President Biden. And he says this. Stronger covid measures, meaning restrictions, produce stronger economic outcomes. That's why jobs, growth and economic activity are up this year significantly over last year. Now, here's the thing. The U.S. is one of the few advanced countries in a better position economically compared to a lot of our peer nations, or at least in the West, because we did not have as severe restrictions as some of those other countries did. And if you look at the experiment within the United States, right, the laboratories of democracy, the red states, without question, have been leading the way when it comes to economic growth, job growth, and those types of metrics. Like the top 10 states on a lot of these important measuring sticks are run by Republicans, where in most of those cases, the restrictions were less stringent than they were in blue states. But the White House chief of staff is saying, no, the more restrictions you have on COVID, the stronger the economic outcome. I think that he is perhaps talking out of his rear end on this one. Yeah, I, I, I'd like to see the data that suggests that that is accurate. I I, I just don't see it. And I, I mean, there would be some interesting other metrics to look at. Certainly the kids, their education. You know, one of the things we've seen is with the mask mandates and whatnot, and some of these lockdowns, not even opening the schools, um, they've stopped doing testing. And so you can't see where the kids have been falling behind and whatnot. But I, I think Ron Klain is just trying to put a political spin on it. It certainly doesn't account for, you know, Florida, Texas, uh, Utah, my home state Utah, of Utah. Yeah. I mean, we're rocking uh, in terms of our business climate, and it wasn't because no, the we economic had more growth. This is, what, this is what drives me crazy, Jason. And Patrick Ruffini tweeted in response to this, like a whole chart, which is illustrating my point. It is because of those red states run by Republicans that have been less restrictive on COVID that the economy is recovering the way that it is. Biden wants the country to do things more like California, but he wants to take credit in the aggregate for the Texas's and Florida's and Utah's and their outcomes. They're trying to have it both ways. Yeah, it, that does not work. And I, I, they can keep saying this stuff, but I think the people, American people know, they, you know, you can say, oh, inflation is transitory. Yeah, the person going to buy that, you know, that uh, that steak and a gallon of milk, uh, they, they understand. They're going to fill up their gas. They, they understand what's happening here. I mean, that's why the president and vice president have the lowest, some of the lowest poll numbers ever. Jason, I want to turn the page and get to some drama in your old stomping grounds, the House of Representatives. We'll get to that subject as soon as we come back with Jason Chaffetz on the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. 
here on the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour. Thank you for listening. We continue with our guest, Jason Chaffetz. As I mentioned in your intro, you served in Congress. You were a congressional chairman in the House. You were there for a number of rough and tumble internecine fights within the party. We are seeing one of those fights play out this week between a few different members, specifically Nancy Mays from South Carolina. We had her on. I'm on her side in this particular spat with the member from Georgia. What I want to ask you about, though, setting aside the back and forth and the shots they're taking at each other publicly, what I'm more concerned about is the report that Kevin McCarthy, the Republican leader, called them both in, asked them to knock it off and say, we've got to be on the same team here. We've got to work together. Let's, you know, not do this, especially out in the open. And within like two minutes, they were both going at it publicly again. I know it's a hard job to be a leader when you've got sort of a a raucous caucus, so to speak. But I'm concerned about the ability of Republican leadership to keep the party on track and on message ahead of the midterms. And then if they win the House back to actually have a governing majority. And this episode seemed to point to an issue that might be brewing here. I'm not taking a shot here at Kevin McCarthy, but it's kind of embarrassing for him to come in and try to lay down the law and have that violated basically instantly. Yeah, I um, I feel for Kevin McCarthy because it's interesting. There are a couple things that structurally changed in the House. First of all, um, social media has totally changed the dynamic. I think far too many members are, are worried about the next tweet or Instagram post than they are about actually passing policy that would work. I think we have strayed from the Ronald Reagan adage of, hey, look, if I can get 80% of what I what I want, yeah, it, then we're moving in the right direction. We're moving the ball forward, and, and that is success. The whole idea of thou shalt not speak ill of another Republican. Look, we need to have vibrant uh, discussions, but when they gravitate to personalities as opposed to policy, then I think we're moving in the wrong direction. I don't think I... I was pretty aggressive, but I think I was aggressive and I I didn't cause the problems that maybe some of these others are right now because I was arguing about policy and and that gains you the respect that you have. The other dynamic guy that's really changed is you know what levers does does Kevin McCarthy have over these people? It used to be and I was one of them that advocated for getting rid of earmarks. Well, earmarks um you know, we're sort of the political candy that leadership would use in order to get you to get in line. And uh, one of the consequences of getting rid of earmarks, starting with John Boehner, they didn't have the political candy to entice members to rally behind something. And philosophically, Democrats believe in centralized government, you know, and hey, we'll all go together. And and Republicans are independent creatures. You know, they believe in self-reliance, self-determination. So, I, their ability, a, a person like Kevin McCarthy or anybody, for that matter, to gather people together and say, we're going as one is very difficult. It's not like Jim Harbaugh trying to get the Michigan football team <laughs> to move in the same direction and go beat Northwestern. That's not well, that's that's a different thing. He did that this year. Uh, so did a lot of people this year, unfortunately. And Michigan finally had that breakthrough season that they've been hoping for. We'll see how they do on Saturday night in the Big Ten Championship game. Jason Chaffetz, we've got to leave it there for now. Always appreciate having you here. Jason is a Fox News contributor, former chairman of the House Oversight Committee. Check out his podcast, Jason in the House, which I had the pleasure of being on recently. Foxnewspodcasts.com. Jason, Merry Christmas. Great to have you. Thank you. 
gets the Guy Benson Show happy hour back right after this. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. It's the Guy Benson Show happy hour, and earlier in the program, we caught up with Dr. Nicole Sapphire, talking about the Omicron variant, the reaction to the variant, what we should actually think and believe about the variant based on actual facts versus panic. Good conversation as usual with Dr. Sapphire. Here's part of that discussion. Doctor, I want to start with uh, the president today gave a speech talking about this plan that he's laying out to combat COVID-19 heading into the winter and the colder months. What were some of your takeaways from what he said? Well, first of all, I think it was an improvement compared to the press conference that was given by Dr. Fauci yesterday. I found that to be an incredibly disorganized, uh, kind of flustering uh, conference where he was asked certain questions and really didn't have science-backed answers for them. So I found that frustrated. I was happy to see that they are moving forward to the winter months. They've come out with their winter plan. I mean, it sounds great in theory. All of these things that he mentioned, I believe, should have probably already been instituted. For example, he's talking about making rapid testing, that rapid antigen testing, more affordable and accessible to people. Uh, yeah. We've been talking about that for months a year. Ago. Months yeah, a year. Well, it wasn't quite out a year ago, but like months ago, I go yeah. and get a rapid test at CVS. It's about 30, 20 to thirty dollars per test. That is not affordable for people, especially if we're wanting people to be frequently testing to try and decrease transmission. So he was saying that he's going to have insurance companies cover that. If you don't have insurance, they need to be free. But I mean, there there, there are a lot of you know intricate details there. He also mentioned expanding vaccination hours for pharmacies and other things. Well, I hate to break it to you, Joe, but uh, we have people leaving their workplaces left and right. So we have a hard enough time having pharmacy open regular hours. Now we're going to talk about expanded hours for the vaccines. I mean, yes, in theory, these are all great things. Um, but, you know, where are the real solutions on how we're actually going to get people to come and work? And what I found to be a little cheeky, which, you know, I tweeted about afterwards, I saw that you posted was he was talking about we're going to have surge teams for rise in cases throughout the winter months and these surge teams are going to go around and make monoclonal antibodies specifically Uh as well as other treatments more accessible i'm like hey what a great idea too bad governor desantis did this several months ago and it was faced with criticism Yep. When DeSantis did it in Florida, people mocked it. They said it was not going to work or pseudoscience. Then they changed their tune because it was working. And scientists said, no, actually, these are uh, effective treatments. My full interview with Dr. Nicole Sapphire available at GuyBensonShow.com, the podcast free of charge every day on demand. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, and wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch, while the Christmas party At our house is this weekend. I have, against my better judgment, invited producer Christine. She will be there. And this raises the difficult question, how much booze to buy? Not just for her, but for everyone. We will hash that out when we return on the home stretch next. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on this Friday Eve. On the Guy Benson Show, GuyBensonShow.com, podcast always free. 
And if you're listening on the broadcast or the premium podcast, you can hear that song. And the good news is the weather outside is not going to be frightful this weekend here in Washington, D.C. I've been checking the forecast. It's going to be clear, but a little bit on the cold side, but not freezing. Like 50s during the day, down into the high 30s at night. That is reasonable. The reason that I'm checking the weather forecast is because we are having our big Christmas party that we have been touching on and teasing now for weeks. And because it's just days away, now we're going to get into it. Producer Christine has been begging to talk about it now for more than a week. And I guess it's finally time. We had to skip it last year. We had a very small gathering, socially distanced, that was partially outside with very few people last year due to COVID. What we usually have is a big bash of some sort. It's a tradition that started when I first moved to Washington, D.C., for my job at townhall.com. I didn't work at Fox yet. And I had my teammates from the editorial side at Town Hall over to my little apartment. I had a studio apartment in my same neighborhood. And I had beer and wine and little munchies and that kind of thing. And I have hosted, in some respect, a Christmas party and holiday party every single year since. This would be year 11 now of the tradition. And once we got the house that has a yard and you've got more opportunity to entertain, it has sort of grown. I'm starting to worry that it has grown too much. This year we have a lot of people who RSVP'd yes. We weren't really anticipating that level of attrition, the low level of attrition. We had a lot of yeses. So in terms of people telling us that they're coming, we are now I think at 106. A couple people have dropped out. So that's cutting in the opposite direction. Some people won't show up, but we have a tent that we're renting to put up outside. And it will be heated, but that will expand the footprint a lot. Nevertheless, it's a lot of people. Now, it's not everyone at once. The goal is over the course of six hours to have different waves of people. Some folks are party animals who love us who will be there the entire time. I think a lot of other people will be going to dinner and then showing up for a few drinks afterwards or coming to us for an appetizer or two and some past food or what have you, some cheese, some drinks, and then go off to dinner or go off to their next party. So usually the way it works is you've got sort of rolling attendance with different groups of people showing up at different times. That's what we're counting on because I'm not sure if we can actually accommodate a hundred people in the house at once. We have a TV down in the basement. We might open up the basement to have a second bathroom available. That might become important. And also, Jason Chaffetz mentioned this earlier, this Saturday is championship Saturday in college football. And the Big Ten championship game, the conference that I pay most attention to, Michigan and Iowa, will be on right in the middle of our party. So we might put the Big Ten championship game on in the basement, and that would definitely spread things out a little bit more in terms of where people are. And if you've got sports fans, they've at least got the opportunity to check the score or go down and watch some of the game if they want to. I'm just sort of planning out loud right now with all of you. I should start making a list of some of these things. One of the things that I spent some time talking about last night and thinking about and Googling was how much alcohol do we need to purchase? And in my Googling, 
the apparent rule of thumb for entertaining for a party like this is roughly one drink per guest per hour. Hmm. <laughs> Was that – did I hear a laugh from producer Christine there? Wait, say that again. One one drink? One drink per guest per hour is apparently the rule of thumb. And That's our- for an average guest. That's not for you. Like we are maybe going to have to order alcohol separately for you. Like seven drinks per that one guest per hour. And then figure out at what point, how many hours in, do you either get carried away by your husband or pass out? All right, that's the calculation for Cookie. But for everyone else, they say on average one drink per guest per hour. And if it's, let's say, five hours really of the party and 100 people, we'd have to have available 500 drinks. So that would come in the form of long drinks. We have 100 long drinks. Get maybe roughly 100 beers. And then we'd have to basically purchase 300 drinks worth of wine, which is dozens and dozens of bottles. Now, the key is a lot of people bring bottles of wine to these parties, in my experience. So do we want to buy all of that wine or do we buy a lot of the wine and then start opening stuff if we need to that people gift over to us? That's one potential opportunity. But we are going to do a big run, I think, tomorrow. I did my food shopping list already for all the food that we're going to be providing, heavy hors d'oeuvres. But the beer and wine situation, we've got the long drink already. The beer and wine situation is still a little bit up in the air. We're going to do red and white for sure. Whether we do a few different varieties of red and white has not been determined yet. But the last thing I want is to run out of alcohol. That's a big no-no. We cannot allow that to happen. I also don't want to buy an insane, ludicrous, ridiculous amount of alcohol that we then don't consume that evening. I know you can always just hang on, like put a bunch of wine in your pantry and use it up over the course of the winter. That's fine. I'd rather err on that side of things. But, Christine, it sounds like you are openly scoffing at what Google tells me is the way we should be planning. Yeah, I think you just have to take into account that this is going to be the first party for many people in a very long time. So um, the festivities may be taken up. Now, I have solutions for you. That's actually, before we get to your solutions, I want to actually say something here. Prepare yourself. Maybe sit down. That is a very good point. I had not really thought too hard about the fact that for a lot of people, this will be the first big blowout type party, especially indoors, that they've been to for quite some time. Not true of everyone. Some people have been living it up and traveling all over the place and doing, but for for many others, that's not really true. For example, last night I was in the green room with Molly Hemingway. She and I were both on the panel with Brett Baer, and we were sort of whispering about the party. She will be there with her husband, Mark. And she was saying, we are so excited about this because we haven't really done a big party like this in a while. So, yeah, people might really want to cut loose. I just wonder, what does that look like? Is that 1.5 drinks 
Yeah, I, I would say, listen, I, I, unfortunately for Quiet Wyatt, uh, he's not going to see the full-on producer cookie, you know, drinking in action. Because let, let's be honest, you got you to gotta keep a, a civility. Well, I do, at least. For, they got to keep it together. Yeah. So, Why are you singling out Quiet White as being fortunate here? We are all fortunate that we're well, not going to be you've seeing seen, You've seen me far gone. So. <laughs> I, uh, I have. And I, and I sometimes get a phone call from yeah. a Mama's Juice uh, impacted where, where producer, I have Christine. Great ideas, right? Or so I think. We have many, many things to say, certainly under those circumstances. But here's the, here's the one thing that I want you to think about as we're considering the math on the drinks, if we were to do, on average, one drink per guest per hour, that'd be 500 drinks. However, we are not going to have, as I was saying, 100 people at the party for the whole time. Maybe at the peak of the party, we'd have like 70 or 80 people with fewer at the beginning and fewer at the end. It's not 100 people drinking all night. It's different waves and probably like a a curve when a bell curve of guests who are actually there and drinking, which is why I feel like going way above and beyond four or 500 drinks might be a mistake because you're planning for too many guests. There's going to be fewer guests there on average at any given time. Well, you could look at it two ways. Um, one, I, I like your idea of get the, you know, not the bare minimum, but get what you were, you know, one drink, your one drink per one hour theory. And then Start opening bottles of what people are bringing. You know we're all going to bring something. Do you know what I'm saying? Like you're going to have plenty of options. Yeah, we'll have that. We'll have the gifted wine mm-hmm. as the backup plan. But I have I have ideas. Okay. I have two ideas. One, I say we bring back a punch. Nobody makes punches anymore. Why don't you get a you, big— You sound like Trump. We don't have punch anymore, but with me, we're going to have the most beautiful, big, powerful, tremendous punch. It's so true. Although he doesn't drink. No, this one's going to have out. Just think about it, like a big punch bowl with, you know, the ladle and everybody's rocking around the Christmas tree and everybody's pouring in the punch. You know, you could think, just think about it. Number two, you haven't even mentioned box of wine. Now, that gives you many, many, many more glasses of wine than an, an actual bottle. So I, I could save you money here. And it's pretty darn good wine. We're not doing boxed wine. And we're not doing punch. Either? Nope. Oh. Nope. I mean, I, I'm not opposed to a punch. The thing is, and you know this, we have a bartender coming just to help us serve and keep an eye on everything and just so it's not a complete mess. So we have to provide all the alcohol, though. The punch is self-serve and it can be messy and spilling and it's, and you know, what do you put in the punch? It kind of sounds like a jungle juice back from college days. That that's That's a no for this particular party. And then just for boxed wine, I don't want to be a snob about it. I know some wine that is served in a box is not bad wine, but just I don't know. There's something about me that I don't want at my party guests being served wine out of a little spigot connected to a cardboard box. All right. Go the fancy route. It's it's aesthetic. It's not necessarily fancy. We're not going to go 
blow out the budget here on unbelievable wine. We're going to get respectably good wine. I, I, I believe you. I, I was just trying to help you and your wallet. No, I, I appreciate that. No, because it is – these expenses are definitely growing because they're like, well, now we need this thing. Oh, what about this thing? What about dessert? We're going to have dessert. We have to have something for dessert. And all of a sudden, what you have budgeted, it just keeps inching north and north and north. And all of a sudden, you're like, well, hold on. What happened here? You need a dessert? I like have to take out a second mortgage. I could make some Rice Krispie treats. And like in green and red, Megan loves those. Have have you offered to make that for her uh, class as a class mom and then forgotten to bring them in? (laughs) That's something something you would have done as a class mother. Actually, I had to email because obviously I'm not the class mother again this year. I had to email the class mother and ask her if she needs anything for the Christmas party. And she said that they're fine. (laughs) Like not even a paper plate, nothing. They're like, hey, honey, the resigned class mom wants to bring something. What should I tell her? It's like, oh, you know, tell her it's it's fine. No, but we could use, no, no, just not, not her. Not her. I think that's a good call. Thank you for the offer. Well, Thank you, you for your I suggestions. Mean, listen, okay, just, I'm putting it out there and then we can end this segment. Boxed wine, punch, and Rice Krispie treats in the shapes of Santa, candy canes, and Christmas trees. This is what I can offer you. That sounds like a wonderful party that you can hold at your house. And if you do, I know I won't be invited because I've never been invited there. But you might want to get it in before you sell the house and move to a tiny apartment where you can't really have parties ever again. Another interesting choice that you've made that we don't have time to get into because we're out of time. You have many questions about the party. I know attire is on the docket. Yes. I know acceptable conduct and behavior is on the docket, not in an HR sense, although we might need to have that. Uh, sort of PowerPoint for you, a training session for Cookie, just a refresher. But just like can you be booking guests at the party, that sort of thing, we will do a Q&A with Curious Christine tomorrow on the home stretch. Until then, have a great night. See you at midnight with Shannon Bream on Fox News Channel. And we will talk to you once again right back here tomorrow on The Guy Benson Show. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.